Well, good morning. Wonderful to see you on the Lord's Day. It's a beautiful Sunday morning here on the first day of the week. It's been good to hear your voices this morning. Good to see uh, more and more of you coming back each week. And uh, we, uh, there's something special that happens when God's people gather together, isn't there? And I hope that you're coming this morning not just to be served, but to serve and to looking for opportunities all around you with your brothers and sisters to minister, to bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, and uh, encourage one another, comfort one another in the Lord. Uh, This is a profound uh, text, and it makes all the difference in everything. And so it is a great privilege to come to this text in the Gospel of John, the series that we've been in here for a couple of years now, and coming toward the end, actually the beginning, right, of the story. Two points this morning that I want to highlight in our text, the human realities of the resurrection. What happened? We'll rehearse the facts the human element of the story. It's a really endearing story recorded here in the Gospel of John. Very human. Then the second um, part of the message, we'll talk about some theological reflections about the resurrection. Why does it matter? But first, I want to kind of walk through the text with you and just think about the people, the human element of this story. See if you can put yourself in their sandals with them. Now on the first day of the week, the focus of John's account, which of course the resurrection account is recorded in all four Gospels, the focus of John's account here begins with the first day of the week. In fact, all four Gospels say the first day of the week which might be interesting uh, to some of you. You might have suspected he would say on the third day. That's what Jesus has been saying all along. On the third day, on the third day, on the third day. But all four of the Gospels make a point of saying it was the first day of the week. And no doubt John did this deliberately. By the time he's writing, you all remember, John is the last of the four Gospel writers to write his Gospel. Quite a bit of time has elapsed since the first three have been written. And by the time John's writing, Sunday is the day when Christians gathered to, in order to worship the risen Jesus. That, that first day of the week became a symbol of new life. It was the day of resurrection. It was the beginning of the new creation that the Lord was bringing about. It was the beginning of this, this new thing that God had done. The, the beginning of a process that will end in the final rest, the final Sabbath rest of the people of God in heaven. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. John begins here very early in the morning while it was still dark. The text says somewhere likely between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning, just before sunrise. And as Mary comes to the tomb, we remind ourselves that she is one who had stayed close to him in these last hours. She and these other women that were recorded in the gospel. 
When he'd been arrested, they followed along behind. They had seen everything that had taken place. They, they saw him when he was arraigned by the authorities. They, they followed him into the, the, from one place to another, from the, the Sanhedrin's headquarters to the headquarters of the Roman governor. They'd seen him brought out before the crowd, stripped and beaten. They'd seen him as he carried his own cross to the place of execution. They'd seen him crucified and lifted up on a cross. They had stood there as he bled for them. As he had spoke, they'd heard his words. They had stuck by him when his own men had run away out of fear for their own lives. Mary Magdalene was one of those women. Now it's the day of resurrection. And like the rest of them, she didn't know it was the day of resurrection. She'd gone in the morning with the others. She's not expecting to see what they're going to see. As far as they're concerned, he is dead. They're just going to do what they could do for the dead body of their Savior. That's all. Yet as Mary comes to the tomb that morning, she does not go in hope. She goes to the tomb that morning out of love. It's all she had left. Love for her Savior who had delivered her, remember, from being possessed by seven demons. Love for her Savior who had in His grace restored her. And even after death, love lived on. Even though he was gone, she still wanted to do something for him. Mark tells us in his gospel that as these women went down towards the tomb, they were discussing together how they would move the stone. <laughs> they, they didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't have a plan. What was driving them there was their love for their Savior. The text goes on to say, and they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Mary arrives at the tomb. She finds it empty. And the other women must have arrived by this point. Verse 2 says, we do not know where they have laid him. But Mary takes off and tells the disciples. She tells them what she knows. The text says she ran, went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. We know that's code word for John. And said to them, here's what she knows, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid Him. Not at all thinking He was alive. Notice uh, just a few human elements here in this story. First of all, notice Peter and John at the tomb. They're seeing. They're seeing. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I don't know why that's there. He says it twice, by the way, in this text. I beat Peter to the tomb. I, have, I, I don't know why he says it. I've studied commentaries. I've looked at the Greek. I don't know. Whatever reason, John wanted us to know he got there first. And stooping to look in, he saw Peter. Um, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, 
not lined with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So Mary comes and tells the disciples, the body's gone. Peter and John take off. They run ahead. Mary evidently follows them back. John gets there first. Peter looks in. Peter sees the evidence of the resurrection. He sees probably almost like a cocoon of the linen cloths that were wrapped around his body because if you'll remember from Pastor Trey's message last week, there were 75 pounds of spices and aloes and ointments all over this body. And so here, this heavily plastered with ointment, grave clothes, probably collapsed on themselves with no body in them. And then over at the side, folded up neatly, the headband. And it was that sight that John says did it for him. See what the text says in verse 8? Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Now what resurrection meant at that stage, John's not quite sure. You can see the text says they did not yet understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. They're about to. They're going to understand things real clearly, real soon. But right now it's still foggy for them. But John knows this tomb hasn't been robbed. This tomb hasn't, this body hasn't been removed by soldiers. Jesus has disappeared from his own tomb. And off they go, leaving Mary standing there. By this time, the other women evidently are gone. She's alone. She's standing there. And that's where we find her in verse 10. The disciples went back to their homes, literally went back to their place, probably back to that room with the other disciples. That's referenced in next week's text. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Notice the second human element here in the story. Mary at the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Can you understand her grief? I can a little bit. I kind of felt it even this morning. Did you feel it a little bit this morning? As we were singing about the cross? And all the accumulation of these last weeks leading up to the cross, the story that we've been living in, and all of that weight and all of that sorrow, all of that pain. We can understand her grief, all this emotion. The anguish of watching him die, having seen him taken down from the cross, having followed the men that buried him to where he was buried, the waiting over the Sabbath day, the desire to go and do something for him, to finish the task of preparing the body for a proper burial, and then finding the tomb empty. All of that had been over now, and she's here, and she's by herself, and nobody else is around, and she just lets it all out. She is in tears, gripped by her grief, 
so gripped she doesn't even seem to notice. There are two angels sitting in the tomb now. They said to her, verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Do you see the significance of her reply here? All she can think about is the Lord's body. Resurrection still hasn't even entered her head at this point. There's no hope here. Just love, just sorrow. And because the body had been removed, she doesn't seem to have any interest in the empty tomb or the angels or apparently not even this gardener. Only for the dead body of her Lord. And while these angels are talking to her, and she's giving her reply, she senses something behind her. The Bible says that she turned. She's talking through her tears to these figures in the tomb. You know, most times when angels appear to a human, humans get on their faces out of fear, right? The soldiers did earlier that morning. Mary doesn't even seem to recognize what's happening here or who anybody is around her. She turns around. John says, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. Now remember, this is her own testimony. This isn't John's testimony. He's gone. He's gone back to his place. This is the witness of Mary. This is Mary's own recollection. John says, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Why didn't she know it was Jesus? Maybe it was her grief. Maybe she was so overwhelmed, so overcome. Maybe it was her eyes filled with tears she couldn't see clearly. Maybe she was supernaturally hindered from recognizing Jesus immediately. We don't know for sure. That happened before, right? The road to Emmaus. People walked with Jesus, didn't know who he was. But the gardener, quote-unquote, addresses Mary. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Same words the angels had said to her. It's kind of a gentle rebuke if you stop and think about it. It's as if they're saying to her, Why would you be weeping today? This is the third day. Why would you be crying right now? Because the tomb is empty? Think, Mary. It implies, in other words, that she and the disciples could and should have known what was going to happen. Jesus had said it how many times? Over and over again, as the Gospels record, on the third day, he would rise from the dead. They had heard it over and over and over. They would heard it from the best preacher ever. And they would forgotten it. That's, of course, something difficult for me to relate to as a preacher. Since I know you never forget any sermons that I preach. Right? Amen. And Mary... In many ways, it's just like us, isn't she? I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a difficult trial when it seems like the sky has come crashing down on you. Anybody ever been there? And even though you are a Christian, you seem to immediately forget all the promises of God. Ever been there? They just kind of evaporate. 
as you're in shock. You've memorized the promises. You've heard them preached. You've heard them over and over again. You've sung them. And yet in the moment, they just seem to evaporate sometimes. You feel sorry for yourself. You get anxious. You worry. You get upset. And so quickly, we forget the promises of God, don't we? It's an illustration back in the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, was susceptible to to depression, often suffered from it in his life. He'd been in a very dark place for about three days in a row. Something had gone wrong. He had got depressed. He had allowed it to weigh on him. He was really down. And on the third day of that depression, he comes down for breakfast. His dear wife, Katie, is standing there. And she's dressed in her mourning clothes. She's dressed all in black. The first question he asked was, who's dead? She answered him, God. Luther said, don't be ridiculous, dear wife. What do you mean God is dead? God cannot die. Katie said, well, the way you've been acting, I was sure God was dead. (laughs) But we're all susceptible to failing in this area, aren't we? We can all be like Mary sometimes and not recognize the obvious. We forget the promises of God, no matter how often we've rehearsed them, been taught them, sung them. Supposing him to be the gardener, the text says, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. She's still thinking about the body. She's locked into this idea. By the way, this, this gives authenticity to the story, doesn't it? She's locked into this idea that the body's been stolen. Someone else has taken it. She turns back away from the gardener again and looks again in the tomb. And then hears a voice behind her. Mary. And it was her name that triggered the recognition. She had heard him say it a hundred times. And she turned back to him and said to him in Aramaic, the language that she spoke, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Now these are just kind of the little touches, the little human touches that makes John's evidence so powerfully authentic. He's recorded this evidence for you too, by the way, brothers and sisters. The message of the gospel is real history that happened. The one and only living God raised Jesus from the dead, and Mary Magdalene was there, and she heard Jesus say her name. It's not a myth. This is eyewitness testimony from people who were really there that day. The gospel doesn't tell us here that Peter believed like it says John did at first in the tomb. But later in his epistle, Peter writes in his first epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. At some point, Peter got it too, didn't he? Mary came to the tomb with love, but no hope. The resurrection gives her hope and awakens faith. 
Then notice, thirdly, human touch here. Jesus is at the tomb too, isn't he? And he's instructing. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me. I wonder if you've wondered about those words. Because Mary not only sees the evidence of the resurrection, she sees the empty tomb, she sees inside, she sees the the linen cloths, she sees the angels. Not only does she meet Jesus personally, but she's given a very interesting insight into the future, the very great future that lies ahead of the church and of the Lord Jesus himself. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes, but, but what's the human connection here in this verse? Do not cling to me. What does that mean? Well, it certainly was not because there was nothing to hold on to. He was not a ghost. It did not mean that he wasn't going to give her evidence the way that he did to Thomas later when he tells Thomas to touch my wounds. Mary doesn't need evidence. He's there. He's talking to her. He'd said her name. She's got her arms wrapped around him, hugging him. She's going to go back and tell the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She knows his voice. She's holding on to him like there's no tomorrow. Why not the joy and the surprise and the delight and the relief? Why are you telling me to let go? And Jesus literally says, do not keep holding on to me. Mary, your embrace was okay, but you've got to let me go. It's not that Jesus doesn't understand the value of touch. He did it all the time to people. Lepers, touch them. Not supposed to. He did. He healed them. Jesus was always ready to, to reach out his hand to the dispossessed, to lift up the fallen, to cheer those who were faint. He wanted people to know a very human, at a very human level that he loved them, that he valued them, that he affirmed them. Jesus reached out and touched people. He was a very tactile person. And yet here he's saying to Mary, don't keep holding on to me. Why? Because Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, was a day that would change things for Mary and for the disciples. It would change their relationship with Jesus. Jesus knew the value of touch. He also knew its limits. Mary holding on to him is not going to help her for the future. So when he said, Mary, don't keep on holding on to me, he wasn't rejecting her. He wasn't being rude. He wasn't being pastorally insensitive. What was the future going to be? She takes his message back to the disciples. They're all waiting, listening probably to Peter and John, right? Telling the story. We found the empty tomb and the grave clothes were there like that and, and we don't know what, what, what this means. And what does it mean? And what does it mean? And, and in through the door comes Mary Magdalene. Boys, I've seen the Lord. Verse 18. Now let's think about some theological reflections on the resurrection. Why does it matter? There are many more than these. But in the text, I just want to look at three of them. 
First, I want you to see the importance of, just for sake of alliteration, fleshly resurrection. The importance of fleshly resurrection, bodily resurrection. At the time John is writing, there's a false teaching going around the church saying that the resurrection was only a spiritual resurrection, not a bodily resurrection. The spirit was considered to be good, flesh was considered to be bad, so only the spirit gets resurrected. Well, notice in John chapter 20 that Jesus' resurrection was very much a bodily resurrection. Mary wasn't hugging a spirit. Later on, Thomas will be putting his fingers into the nail prints and into the side of a body, not a spirit. And according to the other gospel writers, Jesus in his post-resurrection body would eat and would drink like a normal human being. And that's incredibly important to us as Christians. Our statement of faith at Heather Hills has a section on the resurrection. It reads like this. We believe in the resurrection of the bodies of the dead, that believers' bodies that lay in the grave will be raised at the coming of Christ for his church and caught up with transformed living saints to meet the Lord in the air, and that the wicked dead will be raised up at the close of the millennial kingdom and stand in their bodies at the great white throne judgment to receive their final doom. Why do we believe in bodily resurrection? Why is it so important to us? Because Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection. The Apostle Paul spent a whole chapter on this. 1 Corinthians 15. If you haven't read it for a while, read it. It's easy to read, and he lays out a lengthy argument there, arguing for this truth and its importance. In fact, he comes to the conclusion, verse 16, he says, if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, believers who have died, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, now, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's what Paul says. So the resurrection is absolutely essential. The bodily resurrection is essential to the Christian message. Jesus really did die. He really did, uh, was buried, and he really did raise. His body is gone. It was transformed. It was made into his resurrection, immortal body. The same bodies that we are going to have when our bodies are raised at the last day. About a week ago, I stood next to our sweet sister, Ginny, as they closed and sealed the casket of our dear brother, Bill. And I told her in that moment, as they were closing the casket, I leaned over and I whispered to Jenny, we're going to see that body again. Now, I don't know what that body's going to look like exactly. I don't know what age it'll be. I don't know how glorified it's going to take out all of our imperfections and wrinkles and all of that. But we're going to see that body again. That one, the one we recognize, 
we're going to see that again. How could I make such a promise to her? Because Jesus rose from the dead bodily. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he was the first to be raised in this way, but he would not be the last. Notice another theological reflection in this account of the resurrection, and that is the individuality of faith. The individuality of faith. John sees inside the tomb and believes. What does he believe? Well, he believed that the body hadn't been stolen. He believed that somehow or another Jesus was alive. I think that's what he seems to be reporting. Peter apparently did not come to that conclusion at that time. At least it's not mentioned. Although he saw with his eyes the same as John saw. Later on in verse 27, Jesus will have that personal encounter with Thomas. You remember we call him Doubting Thomas for a reason, right? He wasn't in the room when Jesus appears to the other disciples. We'll get into that next week. He had his doubts, right? In fact, he was pretty bold with his doubts, remember? Thomas said, if he's alive, what I want him to do is come and show himself to me, and when I see him, I want to put my fingers in his nail prints, and I'm going to put my hand in his side. That's what I want to do. He didn't believe. And then Jesus shows up and tells Thomas to do exactly that. And what is Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. Faith. Individual faith came to John, comes to Thomas. And then, of course, there's this beautiful encounter with Mary. As I said before, she may have been supernaturally restricted from recognizing Jesus at first. Wouldn't be surprising to us. Wouldn't be the first time that it happened in the Gospels. But how does Mary recognize Jesus in the end? Did you notice? She recognizes Jesus when he speaks to her, when his voice is heard, when he says, her name. And the theological implication of that is that from this point forward, this is how people are going to come to recognize Jesus. Because he's not going to be around much longer to hold on to. In John 10, for example, Jesus uses the image of himself as the good shepherd. Remember that? He says, his sheep know his voice. Jesus is in the business of coming to individual people as he called Mary and called her name. And she recognized him when he called her name. Jesus is in the business of calling people to himself by name, individually, touching their hearts, getting their attention, drawing them to himself. That's the work Jesus is doing today. And if you are here this morning as a follower of Jesus Christ, that means, and it's only because at some point in time in your life, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit and through the testimony of the Word of God, called you to himself. He spoke to you personally. 
He opened your blind eyes. It's a personal relationship. And we see the individuality of faith. Everyone is responsible before God with what they do with Jesus. Everyone will one day stand before the judgment on their own. And you won't get into heaven because your mommy and daddy were believers. And you won't get into heaven just because you sat in a pew in a church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And you won't get into heaven because your good works outweighed your bad works. You get into heaven because you had an encounter with Jesus Christ and you believed. You believed that God raised him from the dead. And you called on him to be your Lord and Savior. Notice thirdly, there's an insight into the future. Back in verse 16, Jesus says to Mary, don't cling to me. Okay, we're back in that section. Things are going to be different. Why? He goes on to say, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Don't cling to me, Jesus is saying, because I'm not going to stay. Your relationship with me, Mary, isn't going to be the same as it was before I was crucified. And he explains to her, I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, Mary, and for all of us who are reading these words, you can't, as it were, you can't freeze frame the story of Easter morning as though the resurrection is it. You can't just push pause on this moment. This isn't where it stops. It doesn't stay here. It has to move forward. And it moves forward to the day of ascension when Jesus returns to the Father in His glory and when He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus is going back to the glory that He talked about. Remember in His prayer in John 17? The glory that He had with the Father before the world began. He never lost the glory. But he's taking his humanity back, his glorified body. He's taking it back to that place, back to the side of the Father. And from now on, Mary will have to live the way you and I live. From now on, Mary will have to live by faith, not by sight. She's going to live in a world in which she will never physically be able to touch Jesus anymore. Relationships were going to change for Mary. And things were going to change for Jesus. He's going back to his father's house. Remember, he had told them in John 14, he's going back to prepare a place for them. And then one day he'll come back and take us to be with him. And he's doing exactly what he said. Notice one more reflection here before we close and that's our introduction to the family jesus says something else to mary that he once delivered to his disciples our introduction to the family he he goes on there and says but go to my brothers and say to them i am ascending to my father and your father to my god and your god he's teaching mary some deep theology here. He, he's saying that Jesus is both one of us and distinct from us. Like us, he's human. 
He's taken on human nature. But that's only one aspect of who Jesus is. Jesus has a different relationship to the Father. We are children by adoption. The Spirit adopts us in the family of God. He is the Son who shares the very nature of God. And Jesus is not turning his back on his friends. He's going to glory to prepare a place for them, to bring them back there. And through Mary's testimony, he's going to be reminding them of what the resurrection accomplishes. It makes us brothers and sisters of Jesus. Did you notice that? Go to my brothers. It's the first time Jesus has talked like this about his disciples. He had called them servants. Remember John 15 in the upper room? I no longer call you servants. He'd called them servants. But in that passage, he says, now I call you, do you remember? John 15, friends. He'd call them servants. He'd call them friends. Now he calls them brothers. This is the teaching of the New Testament. Jesus says, my father can become your father. This is what the resurrection accomplishes. Why did Jesus take on our humanity? Why did he come into the world? Why did he go to the cross and bear our sins? The writer of Hebrews puts it beautifully in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, so that he would bring many sons to glory. That's what the resurrection accomplishes. Here's how our gospel writer, here's John, right? Gospel of John. We're just about done with the gospel of John. A couple months, end of July, we'll be finished, Lord willing. John writes a few other things, doesn't he? First, second, and third epistles. Right before the end of the New Testament. Right before Jude and Revelation. The same, our same guy here writes in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is how he describes this wonderful truth. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He goes on to say, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. So God is our Father. Jesus also says He's our God. You notice that? My Father, your Father. My God, your God. In other words, He is for us. He's on our side. He's our God. And we are His people. And as Paul wrote, if God be for us, brothers and sisters, who can be against us? That's a promise to cling to in these days, isn't it? Jesus says, welcome to the family made possible by the resurrection of our Savior, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll ask the praise team to come back to the front. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment, close our service out then with benediction. You know, there are many pressing concerns in our world today. Concerns of great importance. 
we could get a whiteboard up here and have a pretty long list of them. You know, in time, all these concerns will fade away. Every one of them. All the things that are urgent right now, all the things that press in on us, all the things that cause us grief, all the things that get us mad, all the things that make us wonder, all the things that confuse us, they'll all fade away. But what will still be of importance 50 years from now, 50 million years from now, and brothers and sisters, there will be a 50 million years from now, what will be important is that God is your Father and that God is your God. Heather Hills, don't ever lose sight of those truths. Maybe not everyone hearing this message this morning can call God his Father. To you, I would plead, listen for the voice of Jesus speaking to your heart, calling you to believe in him, calling you to follow him. And when he calls, answer. Bow the knee and make Jesus the Lord of your life. Follow him. Believe in him. Just a few moments after the service is concluded, people are all going to start going that way. We'll go into our ABF classes, Sunday school time for the children. If you need to know Jesus as your Savior, if you need to become a child of God, you don't, you don't just become a child of God. I, I, I know that's a popular thing out there in the world is that we're all children of God. Not true. Not true. In fact, the Bible says by nature we are children of wrath. Destined for judgment. But you can be a child of God. That's the message of this text. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the New Testament. It's the message of the whole Bible. Jesus says, my father can become your father. It can happen. And so as they're all going that way, why don't you come this way and meet us over here in the little cubicle on the side have someone pray with you, open the Bible with you, show you how you can take those first steps in following Jesus. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a final song. The truths in the resurrection are pretty magnificent, aren't they? Jesus has gone back to the Father. But He's preparing a place for you, preparing a place for me. And He's coming back. And He might come back today. Have you thought about that yet? He may come back today. It'll ruin my vacation for next week. But I'll get over it. Jesus might come back today. And his resurrection makes all the difference in the world. For life now, for when we come to death, and for life eternal. Makes all the difference. Let's sing and testify to these important truths today in a final song.